Holly and I, we have been praying. If you want to increase your prayer life, you should have three children who are sick for like three weeks now. And we were just keep saying to ourselves, Holly, we can't get sick. We've got the Shop of Wonders. We've got Christmas Eve. We've got family coming. And, uh, you know, so, so far, so good. So that's amazing. Vitamin C and the Holy Spirit. There we go. Well, Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to all of you joining us online today. I'm so glad that you could worship with us, your Bethel Church family. It's so great to be a part of what God is doing. Uh, it's the week of Christmas, one week away. How many are excited? Yeah, okay. How many are ready? You're ready. You're like all ready, right? And anyone you're not started yet, Riley alluded to that. Who went shopping yesterday? Anyone who's decided to go shopping yesterday? All right, a few fools in the house. I, how many know? I read bar, uh, Black Friday is the busiest shopping day of the year. But the Saturday before Christmas, technically this Saturday, uh, it's called Super Saturday. That's what they call it, Super Saturday, or also known as Panic Saturday. And it is the biggest financial shopping day of the year. The most money spent, uh, people freaking out and just buying whatever they can get on that Saturday. So I hope you had a great time at the mall yesterday if you were there. I popped in, but not because I had to, because I wanted to. And there's a big difference, isn't there, right? In the level of stress, <laughs> whether you're there voluntarily or you have to be there. Uh, hey, you know what? Pastor Riley already alluded to that, but Super Saturday was yesterday. This whole weekend has been Super Weekend. You know, I'm just so grateful. Like I said, Riley said, the Shop of Wonders, over 76 families, uh, a part of that. Uh, yeah, that's incredible. I've been hearing, you know, one of our purposes or one of our goals is to put people in contact and relationships. So we have uh, uh, shopping uh, help assistants, assistant shoppers to help people uh, as they're shopping and just getting to know them on a personal level. We do that same with the food pantry. Uh, the church is hopping yesterday. People coming to the food pantry. What a, a needed uh, ministry here in our community and thank you to all of those who have served giving time. Uh, we've had people building shelves, stocking shelves. We've had people shopping. You know, I think Walmart, we might have clean them out uh, for the Shop of Wonders, I don't know, some of our local businesses, we've had people buying, grow it's just been awesome to see the people of God uh, reaching out beyond our walls and doing the ministry uh, of God. Uh, last Friday night, the youth were away on the all night, Pastor Riley, you are young, let me just affirm that to you, you've still got it buddy, I'm glad for you. I was the youth pastor for 10 years, I did all that, and then I don't do it anymore, so <laughs> you got to stay in your lane. I actually slept over at the Shop of Wonders one night this week, so I can't stay up all night, but I can sleep over uh, <laughs> at the Shop of Wonders, and, uh, and that was really great, just uh, security there. Uh, Koinonia, Friday night, our teenagers, right? We had our teenagers away and our teenagers uh, working together and worshiping God together. Just an incredible, vibrant weekend. How many love to be part of a vibrant and lively church? Who wants to go to a dead church? Who wants to go to a lively church? All right. All right. Well, it's super exciting to be with you today. You know, there's a lot of waiting going on, right? We're waiting for Christmas to arrive, right? How many of you have your Advent calendar? You've been counting down the days, right? 
some of you. Uh, how many of you have been counting down the days? Where's all the students and you are on holidays? Where's all the kids on uh, Christmas vacation? You've been counting down the days and now you're on holiday. All right. I know my kids, they can't wait. Where's all the teachers? You're on Christmas holiday. Woo! All right, all right. You know, you've been counting down the days. Maybe you've been waiting for your guests to arrive and you've been uh, getting, you know, the house clean and getting some of the food prepped and, and you're getting ready and you're waiting for them. How many are waiting for packages to arrive? Anyone? You're just doing that the last minute countdown, checking the tracking numbers every day. There's a lot of waiting going on as we're waiting for Christmas to arrive. Well, you know what? Waiting goes by so much faster when you play a game. And so I thought we could play a game this morning and uh, help you, you know, pass the time uh, a little bit faster. So I'm going to show you a couple slides. On these slides, there's going to be some images of a couple items, and you have to figure out what these images have in common, okay? So Danny, would you throw up my first slide there? Here's my first slide. We have jelly, cat, and sword. Call it out. Uh, yeah, it's not the sword of the spirit, but these things have something in common, all three of them. Yes, there we go. Jellyfish, catfish, and swordfish. Very good. That's how it goes. Okay, all right. Uh, it's Sunday morning. That's, and you're on, you're on Christmas holiday, students, but I'll get you there. Okay, next one. Here we go. Uh, we have jellyfish, bee, and... Sting, yeah, paper cut. They all sting. There we go. Good one. You're getting it. Here we go. Number three. We have mail, pizza, and Amazon. Delivery. There we go. You see, you guys are on fire now. Here we go. Next one. Catch? Things you catch. Fish, ball, and a cold. All right, here we go. Last one. King. Yeah, you were fast. We have the Lion King, King Kong, LeBron, King James, Larry King, BB King, and Christ the King. All right, good for you. You are warmed up and on fire today. Well, we're in the middle of our Christmas ser sermon series, and we've called this series Unwrapped. You know, and the big idea is this, that Christmas, in all its beautiful packaging and wonder, in all the mystery, still needs to be unwrapped for us to discover and experience the gift of God that lies underneath all the layers of festivity. And so we've been looking at Christmas through this lens, and we've been talking about this idea about how we get so wrapped up in social obligations, in cultural expectations. Sometimes we get wrapped up in our own idealism or the idealism of others, and it can become, you know, just like we're all bound up in stress, and uh, we want to just unwrap ourselves from that and just begin to focus and reflect on what's most important. See, Christmas today is wrapped in all the festivities and traditions uh, that we love and hold dear, but, but Christmas, God's gift to us, actually came to us wrapped so much differently. Luke 2.12 says, this will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
I've been talking about this idea of needing to unwrap ourselves from the commercialism and the materialism that we live in. And, and some of us, we need to unwrap ourselves from some of the sadness and the heaviness, the emotion that this season can bring. And, and we got to unwrap uh, that by focusing on the gift of God and Jesus and discovering anew what makes this season truly beautiful. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you have, this season is a season of joy and blessing for you. And so through the season, we've been looking at these different facets, the different expressions of Jesus as we see them in the Christmas story, uh, you know, as, as they were foretold to the characters of the, the Christmas story in their different ways. In week one, we saw that Jesus is the Son of God. And through Jesus, God's Son, God extends to you and to me sonship or full participation in the family of God. The Bible says that we are heirs, uh, recipients of all that God has to us and for us as full participants in his family. In week two, we saw that Jesus was Emmanuel. That God gives in us, uh, through Jesus, the gift of his presence. And he promises to walk with us and to lead us and guide us every step of the way. In week three, we saw that Jesus is our Savior. That he's given us the gift of salvation. We talked about this last week. The gift of salvation from our sins and the eternal punishment that go with those. But not just from something, but to something. To relationship with God for eternity. Well, this morning I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to unwrap uh, another layer of this gift of God presented to us in the gift of Jesus. And in case you didn't catch on, uh, I never play games in church without a purpose. And so the purpose is to get you thinking today about this gift of God as we look at Jesus, the King of Kings. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Let's just pause there for a moment and recognize that there's never been a king that was born before. There's never been a king that was born a king. Kings are born princes and they're awaiting their time on the throne. Jesus came already king. He was the newborn king and they have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. This morning I want to ask you this question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? This word gospel appears 69 times, uh, actually 93 times in the Bible, primarily in the New Testament. And literally speaking, as some of you said, the gospel literally means the good news. Simple, the good news. Uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you still read like a newspaper each day? You get the hard copy, newsprint delivered to your house. You read, yeah, few people, you like the paper copy, okay. Yeah, 
Anyone, you are like in front of the TV every night at six o'clock, you get the nightly news. Anyone, you got the nightly news on? Few people. Where's all the digital people? You just get it on your phone, breaking news headlines to your phone, right? Here's the thing. News is different than opinion pieces, right? News is different than opinion pieces. What is news? News is new and noteworthy information about recent or important events, right? That's what the news is. New and noteworthy information about uh, recent or important events. But news is different than opinion. How many of us, one of the criticisms of journalism today, right, is that there's too much rhetoric, too much bias, too much personal opinion, too much political agenda. How many just want to know the news? Right? We say, just tell it to me straight. Just give me the facts, right? Don't give me opinion. Give me the facts. You know, generally, a good news article consists of three important parts, if you think about it. Right? A good news article uh, has an event. Something has happened. Right? Breaking news. This just in. Something has happened. There's an event. Then usually the article will give you the backstory. Why is this event significant? What led up to this event? What were the characters leading up to this event? Why is this event significant? And the third thing is implication. What could we expect or what might happen in the future? What could this mean to our present situation or to the future as a result uh, this event. So every good news article has an event, it has a backstory, it has implications. Well, theologically speaking, the gospel is not just good news. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke about the gospel himself. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says this. Later, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The word there in Greek is gospel, translated in this version as good news. He preached the gospel. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel or the good news. So Jesus preached the gospel. Now, I want us to think about this for a little bit, and we'll get there in a minute, but Jesus hasn't yet gone to the cross, died, or forgiven anyone's sins yet, and yet he's saying, repent and believe the gospel. What is he telling them to believe? We're going to get into that a little bit. Coming back to this original question, what is the gospel? We would typically and correctly answer that the gospel is the good news about how Jesus, the perfect sinless son of God, became Emmanuel and dwelt among us, showed us how to live in relationship with God, that he became our savior, dying a physical death on the cross at Calvary in our place so that we could be forgiven of our sin and restored to relationship with God both now and for eternity, all of which is absolutely true. That's what we've been talking about these last few weeks. Those are the major themes of scripture and of Christian belief. And so in summary, we could say that the gospel is the good news of God's plan of salvation for humanity through Jesus Christ. You know, when we talk about sharing the gospel, 
That's really what we're talking about usually, right? We're telling people how to be saved. When we talk about a church that preaches the gospel, we want a church that preaches how to be saved, how to be forgiven of sin, how to be saved from sin to have eternal life with God. But today I want to look at a different aspect of the gospel because as I said, Jesus was preaching the gospel, calling people to believe in the gospel, and that all those things hadn't yet been fulfilled. There's, other as there's another aspect to the gospel that he was calling them to. Now here's something we need to know about the gospel. The gospel didn't originate with Jesus or Christianity. Gospel, that word is just a Greek word that we said means good news, and it was a word that was in common use uh, before the scripture writers used it. It was just a common, non-religious uh, word that Christians took and they added extra meaning to it. They added extra emphasis to it. It became uh, to have a life of its own in the way that they used it. But gospel uh, comes from the Greek word that is translated into Latin as evangelion. Evangelion. That's the word for gospel in Greek translated to Latin, evangelion. One of the places we see it historically used outside of scripture is when uh, nations would battle and a king would overthrow another king. And then what they would do is they would declare the gospel or the good news uh, throughout the new realm. As a king came and as he established his rule over a new territory and a new country, a new realm, uh, the good news would go out and guess who would the people, guess what they were called, who would go and take the good news or the evangelion out into the, the realm. Guess what those people were called? Evangelists. They would go out and they would declare the good news. It would go something like this. This just in, breaking news. The war is over. There's a new king. The good news is that this new king is better than your old king. This new king is a king of goodness and generosity. This king will lower your taxes and make your life better. Or at least that's the promises. It remains to be seen whether that's true or not. But good news, you'll love serving the new king. That was the message that would go out, that would be taken by the evangelists out into the new realm. The oppression and the tyranny and the weakness of your old leader has been overthrown by a new king. Get excited a little bit about how this translates into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes that new king would even be described as a savior. As a savior. You know, there's an inscription uh, found uh, from 7 BC uh, from the emperor Caesar Augustus of the Roman Empire. If you don't know Caesar Augustus, he was... Uh, his, uh, his adopted dad, uh, or I think it was his uncle, was Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, also named as Octavian. And he was one of the leading uh, Roman Caesars who established the realm of Rome, took it uh, and expanded it as far as it could go. He, uh, if you know anything about history, you might have heard of the, the Pax Romanus, the, the peace of Rome. And he established this reign and this rule that included the peace of Rome for a significant amount of time. And... Uh, 
And there's a city in, uh, under his room in the city of Prien, and they wanted to honor Caesar Augustus. Now, back then they had a lot of city-states, and it wasn't quite like we have today as organized. We had city-states. And so this city thought, you know what would get us in really good favor with uh, this Caesar is uh, what if we changed our calendar uh, to align with his life? And so that what they wanted to do is they wanted the first day of the year to align on Caesar Augustus' birthday. And so they thought, hey, you know what, if we honor him and we make our calendar revolve around him, maybe he'll have some extra favor towards us. And so we see in this pre-end calendar inscription from 9 BC, so archaeologists discovered this, and, and listen to the wording uh, of this. So they're, they're putting out the statue, this is like the official declaration, we're changing our calendar to honor Caesar Augustus, and this is what it says of him. Providence has filled Augustus with divine power for the benefit of humanity and in her beneficence has granted us and those who will come after us a savior who has made war to cease and who shall put everything in peaceful order. A Caesar, when he has manifest, transcending the expectations of all who had anticipated the good news, not only by surpassing the benefits conferred by his predecessors, but by leaving no expectation of surpassing him to those who would come after him, with the result that the birthday of our God signaled the beginning of good news to the world because of him. Does any of that language sound familiar to you? Does any of that, this predates Jesus, by the way. This is 7 B.C., just a few years before Jesus would come on the scene, before the gospel writers would begin to write. And what I want us to understand is that, and what Jesus wanted us to understand, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ it isn't just a philosophy. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just a set of religious beliefs. They're not just theological musings. They're not just good advice or good counsel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is more than good principles to live by and to guide our morals by. What the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there is good news, a declaration that something has happened, that an event has taken place in human history. Jesus is setting himself up in contrast to the words of Caesar Augustus and the words that the people understood common to that day and said there's breaking news, that something has happened, that there is a new king that has been born, not a theoretical king, not a philosophical king, not an abstract or imaginary king, but a tangible king has entered the course of human history. That's what's happening. That's what's happening here. There's a new king on the throne. And this is the story of Jesus, the king of kings and his kingdom. As we walk through scripture, we see this narrative happening. We see in the incarnation, the coming and the birth of our king. We see then that the kingdom goes through the crucifixion, through the resurrection, and to this place where Jesus is exalted to the throne room of God. He now sits on the throne at God's right hand. And the Bible says that there is coming a time when the kingdom of God will be consummated. That Jesus will come in his fullness. That he'll return and establish his kingdom and rule once and for all. 
What scripture is telling us is not that there's this abstract religious thought, that there was a point in history when Jesus came to earth and he began to rule as king and that there will be another time when Jesus will come again physically to earth and that he will rule once and for all completely in his kingdom. We've got to understand this isn't abstract religious uh, philosophy that we're talking about today. It's not intangible. It's rooted in reality, an actual historical event with tangible implications. See, Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, he's actually setting this up. You know, the gospel writers all have different uh, audiences, uh, one's to the Greeks, one's to the Romans. Matthew's writing to the Jews, and what he's actually trying to do is to establish the lineage of Jesus from King David. They're expecting a Messiah, a king, who will come from the kings of old in the line of David to take the throne. And that's why we read in Matthew 1, uh, he's establishing the lineage of Jesus, and now he's talking about the, the kingdom of Jesus coming uh, with this newborn king. So I want you to know today that what we're talking about is tangible. It's not some pie in the sky thing that we're talking about today. Matthew 2, 2, the wise men came and they say, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. Matthew says the wise men arise on the scene and, and uh, you know, one question and all of a sudden the whole city becomes distressed. Why is that? Well, it's because of the question they asked and who heard the question. See, one of Herod, during the time, Herod was the local ruler, and one of his favorite titles for himself was King of the Jews. Now, the thing about Herod is that he wasn't born a king. He was actually appointed king by the Roman Senate in 40 BC, and he was appointed because he had successfully ran his campaign uh, against uh, some other locals. And by, by campaigning, I meant that he executed everyone who stood in opposition towards him. That's one way to ensure that you win the election, I guess. But how he became the incumbent king of the Jews is significant because he was appointed by Rome. King of the Jews, Herod wasn't even Jewish which is amazing to think about. And so we see Herod, this dangerous and cruel man. He was violently jealous, and he was uh, uh, jealous of his power and of his position, and he was really paranoid about keeping it. Anyone had like a paranoid leader above you, maybe at work or something, and they're like always like wondering what's going on? Like, he was paranoid to the max. This is, this is Herod's uh, um, story. He killed three of his own sons. In fact, the saying was better to be his sow than his son. The, the pigs were more, you know, his, his lunch was safer than his son's because of his paranoia. He killed his favorite wife, Marianne. That's amazing. He had nine more wives, so I guess, you know, the favorite one he could do without, I guess. He killed his mother-in-law because he was paranoid. My mother-in-law's over here. <laughs> he killed his brother-in-law. He killed his uncle. He killed 300 court officials who stood up to oppose him in the killing of his son. He was a paranoid man. And so when the wise men come and they ask, where is this newborn king of the Jews? Everyone's on edge. Because a threat to Herod's kingdom 
meant turmoil and a threat to all of them. And so Herod takes this unexpected approach, though. He hears this news, and he calls the religious leaders together, and he says, tell me more. Tell me more about this newborn king. I want to know all the details of the prophecy of this coming king. And then he sends for a private audience with the wise men, and he begins to ask them, when did you first see the star? And he begins to formulate and trying to put together a plan. He commissions the wise men to go and find this king so that I too can go and worship him, he said. Well, we know the story, right? The wise men go and they find Jesus and after they worship him and they present him with their gifts, uh, uh, it says that the, the God speaks to them and, and he impresses on them to take an alternate route home because uh, God has warned them about uh, the threat of Herod in a dream. Well, Matthew 2, 16 says, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. So he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Talk about deranged, paranoid, holding on to power with everything that he can. Now, I know that sounds terrible and it is terrible, but before you start thinking about thousands of babies uh, being killed, uh, you know, theologians kind of look at the population of the time. They think it would be about 20 kids, which is absolutely terrible. Terrible in his paranoia. Deeply disturbed. And so a threat to Herod became a trouble for everyone. Now, this isn't the warm, fuzzy Christmas story that we all want to gather around the fire and get the kids together on Christmas morning and read, is it? Right? Right? But it's important in answering this question. How do I respond to the gospel? How do I respond to the good news of Jesus Christ? Because it's easy for us all to sit in judgment and disbelief at Herod and, and the evil and the ungodly action that he committed. But how do we know that the Bible doesn't call us to sit in condemnation and judgment of the sins of others? But to look at ourselves and see that we are not always that much different. We're not always that much different. Now we might not take it to the extremes as Herod did, but when it comes to who rules our lives, how do we know that sometimes we're a little threatened? Sometimes we have our own ideas. There's sometimes a competitive power struggle for the rule, for the throne of our life. That's been the story throughout all of human history. How much time do we have? Let's go on a quick journey through the Old Testament, okay? Really quick, I promise. Old Testament. How do we get to this place? The Bible says in Genesis 1.27 that God created humanity to rule and to reign and to, uh, uh, to govern the earth. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. And that God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, rule it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, all the animals that scurry along the ground. So in creating us, God gave us this dispositions towards ruling, towards power, to governing and overseeing. But the catch is that we were to do it as his emissaries, to do it as his ambassadors, as his representatives. But what we see, though, is that when Adam and Eve choose autonomy for God, from God, they begin to rule for themselves. That's what sin is, ruling for ourselves and not as ambassadors of God. That's where brokenness sets in. See, with all the things that God's created in their proper place and form, things are good and pleasing and perfect. 
But outside of God's purpose and intent uh, is where we find brokenness, where we find chaos. Broken rulers bring brokenness and chaos. We've seen that throughout the course of history. Rather than cultivating and caring for the garden and for the world as God created it, mankind began to subject, subjugate, and, and, and dominate and try to impose their uh, authority and power in ways that are, bring brokenness, pain, and chaos. Well, right away, God sets into plan his, his redemption plan. Genesis 22 says that God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to lead you, and I'm going to lead the descendants that will come through you, and we're going to be an example and an inspiration to the rest of the world about how things are supposed to be. I will be your God. I will be your king. You will follow me and me alone. And so Abraham and his descendants, as we know the people uh, Israel, begin to follow God. And through all of the Old Testament, we see that this relationship is kind of an on-again, off-again relationship, right? It's, it's good one day and bad the next, right? It's hot and cold. We see this example as flawed. They're continually wavering between following God and following themselves and following the people uh, around them, which ends them up in captivity. Uh, it ends up in this place of Egypt, enslaved under the rule of Pharaoh, one of the, uh, one of the, the harshest and oppressive rulers of his day. 400 years goes by and, and God uh, leads Israel out from under Pharaoh's thumb and, and their response is relief and repentance. In Exodus 14, it says, the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians and they were filled with awe before him and so they put their faith in God. Hey, this is awesome, God. Thanks for what you've done for us. Uh, a couple of verses later, it says, the Lord will reign forever and ever. God, we're, we're back on the right track. You know, we're gonna follow you with everything we have again. And so they set out to follow God and, and to be led by him as their king. And in this period of time, God is leading them, instructing them. We've seen in the Old Testament, he would speak to them through his prophets and he would give them his judges to, to lead them and guide them. And they were all under the authority and leadership of God. Well, first Samuel comes and the people begin to get restless. And they begin to say, God, we want a king like everybody else has. We want a man who rules over us that we can see and we can serve. In verse 7 of 1 Samuel 8, it says, the Lord replied, they're rejecting me. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. And so a pattern is set in place of, of man ruling them, a series of broken rulers. Sometimes they're led by kings of their own nations. Sometimes they're led by kings of, uh, of conquering nations. Some of the kings had good intentions, but many had prideful self-interest. And all of them led with brokenness and with pain. God never wanted them to be ruled by others. Because he knows that broken rules, rulers perpetuate brokenness on others. He wanted to be their perfect and just king. And so it's into this lineage of human kings that God inserts himself. Not as a prince awaiting his ascension, but one born already a king. Luke 2, 32 says, You'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever and his kingdom will have no end. 
See, God's plan has been, is now, and forever will be that he sits on the throne of our lives as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Herod tried to fight it. He stood in opposition to it. He desperately tried to displace Jesus, to hold on to that position of power on his throne, only to die and to lose it all. And we could look at Herod and we could see the story through a lens of judgment, but we also know that we too try to hold on to the power and the authority of a throne of our lives at times, don't we? The religious people, we do it too. Just look at the ones in the story. Just look at the ones in the story. The people of Jerusalem are horrified at the actions of Herod, but they're not the only ones uh, exhibiting selfishness and disregard the power struggle for the throne, the religious leaders, they knew the answers. They were familiar with the the prophecy. They understood all that it was supposed to mean. Yet scripture says that they didn't even go look for themselves. Herod was standing in opposition, but these religious people were in, in indifference to the kingdom of God around them. And they were supposed to be the leaders. Probably the biggest travesty is that they didn't even point others to look for Jesus either. How many know as God's people, we want to be pointing people to Jesus, not standing in indifference to those around us? They were so close, yet so far away. It's predicted that the wise men traveled about a thousand kilometers to get from where they were to Bethlehem. And yet these religious leaders were just mere kilometers away, and yet they were indifferent to what was happening around them. They'd become indifferent and apathetic to Jesus' place on the throne of their life. I began studying this week a little bit. I was like, what motivated these wise men from afar to go and follow Jesus, to pursue Jesus? How do they even know about this prophecy? What compelled them? estimated that they came from Persia, from the Babylonian region. And if you remember in the Old Testament, Daniel was taken from Israel into captivity in Babylon. We know the story of Daniel, that he prayed when he was told not to pray, that he served God when he was told not to serve God. He would not bow for other kings and other idols, but he stood fast saying, there's only one ruler of the throne of my heart. There's one king of kings, and it's the Lord of lords. It's the God of Israel. And so we know that about Daniel. We saw in Daniel that he became the leader of the Magi. He became the leader, the chief Magi. And it's believed that these wise men hundreds of years later knew about the prophecy of the coming king, this newborn king, because of Daniel's faithfulness in teaching and, and, and telling them about Jesus who was to come. How many know that we can change our family trees, we can change our, the, the lineage of the, the children who come after our kids, our grandkids, by choosing to follow Jesus faithfully today? There could be generations of people after us who will follow and look for Jesus. But it starts with us saying today, God, you're the king of my life. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about Jesus, the son of God, who brings sonship, relationship to the family of God. We've been talking about Emmanuel, God with us, who brings leadership and guidance to our life. We talked last week about Jesus, Savior who forgives us of our sins and who brings us back into right relationship with God for eternity. 
But today as we wrap up this series, I want us to look at Jesus, King of Kings. King of Kings. Isn't it amazing that a king would not rule in power from above, but he comes from below. That the king is the one who says, I want to be in relationship with you and I invite you into this relationship with me. And yet that king has this place of honor and authority, of sovereignty of our lives. And so we say, we thank you, Jesus, to be children of God. We thank you, God, for being in relationship with you. We thank you for your leadership, guidance. Thank you for salvation. But today we need to say, God, there's actually something deeper. You are the king of my life. The authority of my life, the leadership of my life is yours. And it's not just a philosophical idea. It's an idea rooted in history. It's a tangible expression. Lord, you are the king of my life. You entered humanity at a specific place and time. And the Bible says one day you will return again in a specific place and time. And in the meantime, we look for you like the wise men did. We await your coming. And in the, while we're waiting, we're worshiping. And while we're waiting, we're worshiping. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for my friends today all across this room. On this Christmas week, Lord Jesus, we're leading up with expectation and celebration and, and anticipation, God. But we know that this is a celebration of what you've already done. You told us in Mark 1 to repent and to believe the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the kingdom of God is near. Now we look back on it, God, we can see, Lord, that there's so much depth and wonder to that, Jesus. But we see now fully your kingdom and your plan established. That your kingdom is established here on this earth, God, and over the earth and in the heavens, God. I pray, Lord, that it wouldn't just be so intangible to us as a spiritual thing, though, Lord God. We would understand that it has physical implications to us, God. This earth is yours and all that's in it is yours. And so we worship you, Lord, as your subjects as your children, as your friends, as your family. But we look to you as our king today and say, God, well, you have absolute control and we worship you as such. God, for those that are here, maybe they've looked at you as savior or forgiveness of sins or a, a friend, Lord, but, uh, but today we've got to take another layer and, and say, God, you're the Lord and you're the king of my life. I submit to you, to your leading and to your ways because you're a good king. You don't lead us out of ambition. God, you don't lead us out of pride. You don't lead us out of power. You don't lead us out of brokenness. God, we can trust that you are the king who uh, wants to, to lead us for our own good, to bless us, to see us flourish, to see us uh, in abundance as your children. And God, I, right now we only see partially what this means. The Bible says one day we'll see in fullness as we stand before you face to face. But we just join all of heaven today and say, we worship you, King of kings and the Lord of lords. We look forward to your return. We look forward to your return, but while we're waiting, we're worshiping you. While we're waiting, we're worshiping you. While we're waiting, we're pointing others to you so that they can worship you too. Go with us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.